Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello. Before today's episode, I would like to ask you to please review and rate my podcast because it does help with the ranking and makes it much easier and more visible for people to find. So you would actually be helping individuals like you. Thank you. Hello, welcome to my YouTube channel and my podcast. Today, I have with me as a guest, Stacy Friedenthal. She's a clinical social worker. She works with suicidal patients and also with grief related to suicide. She's the author of the book, Helping the Suicidal Person, Tips and Techniques for Professionals, which I read. I, this is actually how I heard her name. I, I listened to a podcast with her and she was talking about the book and I just found it fascinating. And although it's written for us, mental health professionals, I think any, everybody should read it because it's very well written, very simple, simple language, no jargon. So it's for everyone really. And it, it really is precious. All the, all the tips, I keep going through them over and over again. And she's also a member of the faculty of the University of Denver. That's where she lives in Denver, Colorado. Welcome to my podcast, Stacey. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. And thank you for what you said. I don't think my book has ever been called Precious. So <laughs> I appreciate that. It is. It, it is to me. And I'm sure my audience would really, I'll, I'll make sure I have a link to your book. Well, thank on the you. Notes, on the notes for this episode. And I would start to, I'd like to start by asking you, I find that most of us who work with suicide prevention, we have a personal history with suicide. I don't know if it's the same with you, and I would just like to clarify that. Yes, yes, I definitely have a personal history with suicide, both as somebody who's experienced suicidal thoughts and as somebody who's experienced mm -hmm. suicide loss. And ever since I was an adolescent on and off, I've had suicidal thoughts in my life and they really came to a head in my 20s when I entered a very severe suicidal crisis and mm. made, so made actually two suicide attempts in my 20s. Um, and that kind of set me on this path of wanting to help other people who experienced suicidal thoughts as well. And then also when I was 15, a friend of mine in high school died by suicide. And mm -hmm. I had just been with him a couple of hours before all, all our oh friends had. We, yeah, it was, it, it was five days after another suicide in our school of somebody in the same grade who I didn't know well. In mm -hmm. fact, I didn't really know him at all. Um, but this, so the first one, his name was Daniel. And the second one, who's a friend of mine, is named Sippy, or was Sippy. And we had just all been at a party together. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Stacy. now that you have all this knowledge and you've been working with suicidal patients, when you look back, 
how do you see your attempts? How do you, did it change? I mean, over time, the way you saw what was happening to you? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> it's such a good question. I'm not sure what the answer is. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of what I do is through two lenses. And one lens is definitely evidence-based treatment. And, mm -hmm. you know, what the evidence is of which treatments help people who are suicidal. But the other lens is what I would have wanted people to do for me mm -hmm. in my 20s when I was in such a suicidal state. And fortunately, the two converge. You know, intuitively, what I knew that I needed and wanted in my 20s is what um, the evidence is showing is what helps people. And frankly, it's probably because it doesn't require a rocket scientist to know that um, what, a, what somebody who's really hurting and suicidal needs is for people to listen to them, to join them in the darkness in which they are stuck, to not get, engage in a power struggle with them. You know, there are very different ways that therapists, even today, even with the evidence we have, engage in power struggles. And so I knew as a client what I needed, and the research then has backed that up subsequently. Mm -hmm. So mainly you wanted someone to come to you with no judgment and maybe just approach you from a place of where is it hurting? Where is it hurting and why do you want to die? And I'm not going to try to talk you out of it, mm. you know? I, you know, what I teach my students is there's the validation stage of helping and then, the, and then the change stage. And in the validation stage, we need to just listen non-judgmentally with a stance of curiosity to learn really what's going on with this person. And as instinctive as it is to try to change the person's mind, we need to resist that at first so that mm -hmm. they have a space where they can talk without being talked out of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, because I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because that's actually one of the topics that I want to go through. Your book is very, very easy read and it has topics. I think it's 80 something tips and techniques. 89. 89, 89, yes. So I'm going to go through some of them. But before I do that, I'd like to read something you wrote a while back. And I have a question after that. So okay. you wrote that a major goal of therapy is to help people discover the authentic part of themselves that has become buried by their deeply held negative beliefs, painful emotions, and negative coping patterns. So can you talk a little bit about that? I was very curious with the word, with the word authentic selves, that they lose it. And how does that ha happen to your patients? What do you see in your practice? Yeah, it's, it's so complex. And then also in some ways it isn't. But the experiences that I've had personally, but also professionally with every single client, there's a part of them that wants to live. You know, and it may be very, very tiny, but it's still there. And what happens is in a suicidal state of mind, a person, they experience what I've seen in the literature referred to as cognitive constriction, where it's like they're wearing blinders, mm -hmm. you know, and the blinders get more and more narrow. 
and all they're seeing is the pain that they're in or the hopelessness they're experiencing or the desperation caused by the problems. You know, they may be life practical problems in terms of poverty or homelessness. And, and everything else is outside their view, you know, and they're not able to see it. And so then they, their view becomes, for lack of a better word, distorted. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and yet there is this part of them that, that creates ambivalence. And I love that word, ambivalence, because it, it, it reminds me of Dr. Edwin Schneidman. I'm sure you've read his books. It's so he was so precious, such a such a wonderful man. I don't know if I mentioned to you, but I I was I had the privilege of interviewing him. Oh, that's fantastic! Yes, yes, I did, and it was so amazing. He was so humble. I just couldn't believe it. He was like the the first one. I mean, he's he opened the doors to all of us, and his were the first books. He was the the he opened the first suicide prevention clinic right in California. And I interviewed him. He, he was just so sweet. And a few months later, he died. I was so sad to know. Well, talk about precious. Yeah. Yes, he was. He was really precious. You know, one of the, and the funny thing about the interview with him was he tried to lead me. He's, he would give me Paula, but very politely, Paula, can I ask you to ask something? <laughs> And I said, of course, daughter, you can ask me anything. Are you kidding? And he goes, oh, can you ask me how old I am? (laughs) (laughs) Which you probably wouldn't have asked. Never. I would never ask that. And I said, yes, sure. So how old are you? And he said, I'm going to turn 90 next week. And now can you ask me what I'm going to do on my birthday? And I said, okay, what are you going to do on your birthday? And he said, my birthday is on a Thursday. And Thursdays for the last 40-something years, I don't remember the number, I go to my therapy, to my own therapy, because I believe that we should all invest that in ourselves and examine ourselves. I think that, and then he just talked about the value of therapy. It was just so humbling for me. And I've done that for 40-something years, Paula, and I will, that's what I would do next week. That's Isn't great. that cute? He's, he's one of my heroes because he, he got it, you know? He, he, if he had been my therapist in my 20s, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I would have been very, very pleased because he says that what's most important isn't what a person's risk factors are, isn't what mental illness they have. What's most important is where they hurt. Yes, yes. Actually, my my Brazilian website, the one in Portuguese, the main page, when you scroll down, you have this written and signed by him. It says, um, if you find someone who is suicidal, you ask two questions. Where does it hurt and how can I help? Yes. He was a visionary, wasn't he? That was in the 60s, right? Late 60s that he was already thinking about these things. So anyway, now let's continue with our interview, but he totally deserves all our time. <laughs> well, I think that was our interview. That, that was yes. part of our interview. Yes, of course. Yes, it is very important. We have to acknowledge his value for sure. 
So let's talk about assessment and not assessment for us therapists, but for the layperson, for my audience who is listening and they find that someone they know is thinking about suicide. How can you do that? How can you assess where they are? Mm-hmm. Well, first, how do they find out that someone they know is thinking of suicide? Hmm. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I say that is because so many people are afraid to ask. You know, they may have suspicions that a person they care about, you know, maybe in a place where they're in so much pain or desperation that they're thinking of suicide. But the the person is afraid to ask. Mm-hmm. Are you thinking of suicide? And there's a very common fear that asking puts the idea in somebody's head. And we've got significant research, study after study after study, that shows that's not the case. Mm-hmm. That asking somebody if they have thoughts of suicide doesn't give somebody the idea. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is everybody already has the idea, unless they're very, very young, you know? And, and even then, There's research that suggests that even for children younger than seven, they may not know the word suicide, but they do know the concept of not being alive anymore Mm -hmm. and that it's okay to ask Mm -hmm. you ever wish that you weren't alive anymore. So the first thing I would say, Paula, is that um, it's important to ask and to ask in a way that invites a real answer. Because, you know, I've heard of and I've also seen in the media examples where somebody says, you're not thinking of suicide, are you? Yeah. And that invites a no, of course not. I mean, that's sort of like, you know, I say this to my students, if there's a tray of brownies and there's only one left, I might say to my husband, you're not thinking of eating the last brownie, are you? Yeah, he knows after that, right? <laughs> he, mm-hmm. he knows that he, he, he really ought to say no or not. Um, and uh, but then you know, something that I will see in the media, um, and, and I, I know that this happens in real life because I've had clients tell me someone will say, You're not thinking of doing anything stupid, are you? Mm-hmm. And these don't invite authentic responses. Avoiding the term suicide perpetuates stigma that there's something so wrong with thinking about suicide that Mm -hmm. we can't even name it. You know, we need to make the unspeakable speakable. And and then how do you react when somebody says, yes, I do think of that sometimes. And I mean, I could give you a whole list of responses that people have that shut down the process. Can you give us, because that's important for people to know what not to say to. Yeah, and I actually have a blog post of um, things not to say, and I have a blog post of things to say on my website, speakingofsuicide.com. I'm not sure, I don't remember if you mentioned that. But um, one would be, how could you think that? How could you think of suicide? Or how could you think of hurting me like that? I hear that a lot from adolescents, that a parent takes it very personally and gets upset. And let me just say, I understand. Of course, yeah, yeah. We're not judging here. We're just saying it's not helpful. Right. It may not be helpful, yeah. Right. 
I, you know, I have a, I have a son who's now 20. I mean, I know how devastating it would be, you know, to have your child tell you that, but we also need to try to step back and right now focus on that person's needs and not our own. Mm-hmm. And the most helpful responses are the ones that invite more expression. So tell me more. Or, oh my gosh, you must be hurting so badly to be mm-hmm. thinking of killing yourself. Yeah. What's going on? You know, something that invites the person to, to open up more rather than to shut down. Mm-hmm. So, they, so they can talk about what they're feeling and what they're going through. So it's opening the door, not constricting it even more. Exactly, because even if we try to talk the person out of it immediately or, or shut them down, that doesn't make the thoughts go away, you know? And it could, it could be a real missed opportunity to connect with the person who's thinking of suicidal and to help them feel less alone, mm-hmm. you know? And, and if we're not able to respond in a way that enhances connection, then they may feel more alone or even more hopeless that anybody could help them or anybody could understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, again, Dr. Edwin Schneidman, our idol, (laughs) he said that too, half of it is the pain and the other half is being alone with the pain. Yeah, yeah. And can I give you an example of that? Sure. So one of the, Well, the very first thing I did in the field of suicide prevention was I volunteered at a a suicide hotline in Dallas, no longer operating, last I heard, but it was called Contact 214. And um, I had to observe shifts before I could go on the line myself as a counselor. And the one of the very first shifts I observed, it may have even been the very first shift, was somebody called... And they said something along the lines of, I hate myself and I don't deserve to live. And the counselor, um, she immediately jumped in and said, yes, you do. You deserve to live. Why do you think you don't deserve to live? Hmm. And, And actually, why do you think you don't deserve to live is a perfectly fine question. But she was asking it in a kind of judgmental stance. Like, how could you think that? And even then, and, you know, it was only about a year after I'd um, had a suicide attempt. So this was all still very, you know, this frame of mind was still very fresh for me. Even then, I just could understand how alienated he must have felt. Here a complete stranger says, oh, I know what it was. He said, I'm a bad person and I don't deserve to live. And she said, you're a good person. And you do deserve to live. Yeah. I, I what just, you're saying, yeah, because it, how, how do you know? You just talked to me for two seconds, right? Exactly. And maybe he had done something really, really terrible. Yeah. Not that that makes him a bad person, but maybe his statement was coming from a place of real guilt and shame. Maybe he had raped someone or maybe he had, mm-hmm. you know, beaten somebody. And for her to immediately say, you're a good person and you deserve to live, that shuts a door. That shuts a door where, where most likely he had a reaction along the lines of, she doesn't know me. 
How does she know? She doesn't, she doesn't want to know me. She can't handle knowing me. And as it happened, he did. He hung up shortly after that. So that was a good lesson for you on what Very not to do. Yeah. And I use it in my teaching because it's a completely natural impulse to want to say, you're a good person and you deserve to live for, for multiple reasons. One, because the person listening, chances are, most often, is an empathetic and sympathetic person and doesn't like to see another person hurting. And so, you know, it's instinctive to try to immediately help that person to feel better. And there's also a, a selfish reason, and I don't mean selfish in the negative sense of the word, but in just maybe selfish, I shouldn't say, but there's a, there's a reason we do it to protect ourselves when we jump in and try to help somebody feel better. And that's that it's really scary to sit with somebody who's hurting mm -hmm. and to, to really sit with them and hear them it's scary you know mm -hmm. there's fear of contagion that now will get depressed or sad or anxious and then there's also fear of making it worse by not making it better and it's kind of counterintuitive that by letting the person inviting the person to share their pain that can actually help them to feel better If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or my name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. Well, so the first step is to assess. In terms of assessment is to find out where they are and also know in the continuum where they are. Are they having ideation? Have they attempted before? Or uh, do they have a plan, a set plan and all of that? Try to assess too in terms of method. Do they have access to methods? So how safety plan would be the next step, wouldn't it? I mean, how can you can you explain to to my listeners what an what a safety? This sounds very technical, but a safety plan is, and how can they do that? How can they create a safety plan? Sure. First, though, I want to underscore what you said is. You know, the first thing, as I was saying, is to learn, are they thinking of suicide? But then, as you said, then it's important to understand the degree, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I think before we go into what are their, what is, you know, are they planning on acting? Are they going to act soon on their suicidal thoughts? You know, do they intend to kill themselves? Um, those are very important questions. But in between there, as I said, is it's important to invite their story. And there's actually some research that indicates that specifically saying this can be helpful. And that's, can you tell me the story of how you got to this place? Or can you tell me the story of how you came to think of suicide? Or something along those lines. That's great. Sounds really inviting. Yeah, it's, it's from a 
uh, an intervention called the Assisted Suicide Short Intervention Program. And I think I'm pretty sure that's the name for it. And, um, and it's because in telling a story, in telling one story, there's healing. You know, doesn't mean the person will be healed of suicidal thoughts and instantly better, but it at least is something that um, provides a, the opportunity for healing. Mm -hmm. um, so then, so now you know, okay, this person's sitting in front of me, you know, I'm just going to make something up, you know, let's say it's me, I'm talking with my best friend, Jane, I don't really have a best friend named Jane, but my best friend, Jane, and she tells me that she is thinking of killing herself, and she's thinking of using this certain thing that she has in her house, and, um, but she doesn't know when, it's not a plan, it's just that she has these thoughts. And so that's where safety planning can come in. And the first thing I wanna say about safety planning is what it's not. A safety plan is not a contract, it's not a promise. That therapists used to widely use, and there's still some therapists who use it, what's called a safety contract or a no suicide promise. And the safety contract is such that you're, you're expecting the person to make a promise that they won't act on their suicidal thoughts. We'll talk about feeling alone. Yes. This, is, yes. this happened to me in my 20s. I went to the first therapist I told that I had suicidal thoughts to, and I also was self-harming at that time <clears throat> in a non-suicidal way. He wanted me to make a promise not to hurt myself. And I said, why would I be coming to you if it were that easy? <laughs> like yeah. if all it requires is for me to say, okay, I'm going to stop now. I mean, that's like somebody with alcoholism going for, for alcohol treatment. And the counselor says, in order for me to work with you, I need for you to promise not to drink anymore. And the, I'm, the person, I'm really I'm, glad you mentioned that because it used to be standard. It did. And right? It used to and, be. It still is, especially in school systems. Wow. I hear of a lot of school districts or schools themselves that require a student to promise not to try to kill themselves. Hmm. So, so that's a, a contract or promise. A safety plan is instead of what, instead of asking the client or the person, because in this case, I know we're talking about lay people as well. Instead of asking the suicidal person to promise not to act on their suicidal thoughts, we brainstorm with them what they can do instead. And the safety plan, it, it, there's a specific plan that you can get. I think the web address is suicidesafetyplan.com. And it was developed by Barbara Stanley and Gregory Brown, uh, two psychologists. And the first step is to ask the person, what are warning signs? that a crisis may be brewing or that you may be in danger of acting on suicidal thoughts. And, you know, warning signs can be thoughts, they can be emotions, they can be actions. You know, they can be, my boyfriend is mad at me, or I didn't get enough sleep, or I feel very anxious. You know, it can be anything. The next step in the safety plan is ways that the person can distract themselves. And to distract themselves could be 
specific things they can do, you know, specific music they could listen to, going for a jog in the park, watching funny movies. And the more specific you can get with the person, the better, because ideally either they or you is writing this down, either they or you are writing this down, and then they can refer to it when they're in a state of crisis and they don't have to make any decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, so here it says on the list, I will watch reruns of Seinfeld. And then they're spared the decision of what should I watch? You know, okay. because they may be in a paralyzed decision-making state. And then the next step is um, places they can go or people they can be with. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily disclosing their suicidal thoughts, because then that's the next step is who uh, friends and family and non-professionals, they can ask for help. The next step is professionals. And, um, and that can include, you know, therapist, primary care doctor, hotline, tech crisis text line. Hotline is 1-800-273-8255 in North America. Text line is 741-741. And could include a clinic, an emergency room. And then depending on which version of the safety plan you're using, there's either one or two more steps. The next step is what they can do to make the environment safe. So if they're thinking of using a firearm, what can they do about having a firearm in the house? This can be a very delicate subject, especially in the United States. Yes, when it comes to guns, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's where it's important to take a collaborative stance. And, you know, I see therapists say things like, you know, we need to require the client to get the gun out of their house but it doesn't work that way, you know? And then again, depending on which version of the safety plan you're using, sometimes there's a last step and that is to ask the person or, or to, you know, the, the plan itself is written in the first person and it's the thing that is most important. I don't remember the exact wording, but you know, the most important reason for staying alive for me is, mm. and that can, that can, uh, elicit really important information for the person. The challenge is some people will say, I don't have a reason. Yeah. And then that can deflate the safety planning process. Like, oh, I just went through all that and I don't have a reason. The reality though, I mean, I hear people say that's a challenge, but the reality is, is there is a reason so far because the person is still alive. You are here, right? You came yeah. to therapy. So there is something holding, holding on. Even if they didn't come to therapy, even if it's, you know, a parent talking to their teenager, the teenager is still alive. Mm-hmm. Know, so something in them has, has kept them alive. And what, what is that? Mm-hmm. So if the person says, you know, there is no reason, then we can ask, what has stopped you so far from acting on these thoughts, on these suicidal thoughts? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we go into some of the tips you gave on, on your book? Of course. Okay, first one, reflect on your own biases, face your fears. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is we grow up in a society saturated with stigmatizing messages and instinctive fears about suicide. And those fears and biases can come out when we're talking to somebody who has suicidal thoughts. 
And if we reflect on what our biases are, they're less likely to come out without our being aware of them. You know, if we're if they're unconscious, then we may we may express things out of a blind spot and not realize what we're doing. And I realize I'm being very abstract, so let me use an example. Um, there's really two categories. There's biases and then there's fears. So first, let me start with biases. Okay. Say I grew up in a household where I was taught that suicide is a sin and whoever dies by suicide goes to hell. And if I believe that, or, or even if I don't believe it, but that message has stuck with me, then I may say things to a suicidal person that appear judgmental and that shut down the process. You know, I may say, well, what do you think about the fact that you could be punished to eternal damnation? You know, I mean, I would never say that, but you know, that yeah, could be I understand, a question. Yeah. And then the person feels even worse. Like, oh my God, you know, A, they think I'm going to hell and B, what if I am going to hell for feeling this way? And then C, I can't stop myself from feeling this way. You know, mm-hmm. so, so it's, it's um, a quandary for the person. Fears, this is so important. I mean, I think this is, this is probably the most important thing is that when we, we are afraid, there's no way not to be afraid when you're sitting with somebody who is thinking of ending their life. I read a, a very prominent psychologist. He said in an article that it's shameful that therapists haven't had the fear trained out of them. And I disagree. I, I think totally, no, that's not human to not be afraid. No. Exactly. I think, I, I think if somebody doesn't have a little fear, then that worries me. Because then I fear that they are not recognizing the gravity of the situation. I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, when you think about a brain surgeon, they're able to cut open a person's brain without, well, I was going to say without fear, but I don't know. Maybe they do. (laughs) Maybe they are. Maybe (laughs) it's what keeps them very focused, right? Right. Their fear might be of making a mistake and getting sued rather than of harming this person's brain. But either way, fear is a motivator. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when fear can motivate, is when fear can motivate, I think that's good. It's when fear paralyzes mm-hmm. that it's a hindrance. I and see. fear is what makes it so hard for people, even therapists, even therapists who have been trained otherwise, to sit with the person in their pain because mm-hmm. they're so afraid that the person, that they're so afraid that they, the helper, will say the wrong thing won't pick up on clues, that the person they're talking to will die by suicide. And that, you know, they're so afraid and and they're so focused on their fears that they're not able to be present Mm -hmm. with the suicidal person. Yeah, they're thinking ahead. Should I hospitalize? Should I call 911? Should I call their parents? And you're not there with with the person or the patient if you're a therapist. Yeah, exactly. You're talking about fear, and one of the things you say is, it sounds very scary in a way, is validate their suicide, I mean, validate their wish to die. It sounds very counterintuitive. How can I validate something that we're trying to stop? So why do you say that? Yeah, and there's a difference between validating emotion and validating action, you know, so... 
to validate emotion is not to say, you're right, you should kill yourself. Or, you know, but it, it is, it could involve saying something like, it makes sense that you are having thoughts mm-hmm. of suicide. You know, valid doesn't necessarily mean right. It can also mean that it makes sense. And so I, I, I say this a lot to clients is we are wired as human beings to avoid pain. You know, that's how our species has survived is to avoid physical pain and emotional pain. And so if, if you can't think of any way to escape this pain, it makes sense that suicide would come into the picture. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't mean I think you should kill yourself. It doesn't mean that it's the right course of action, but it makes sense that your mind goes there because you're hurting, you know? And, and there can be other reasons why it makes sense that the person is thinking of suicide too. Maybe they have depression and suicidal thoughts is a symptom of depression. Maybe they've just experienced trauma or loss and thinking of suicide as a way for them, well, I guess now I'm going back to avenging the pain. You know, they, the definition of crisis is when um, pain exceeds the ability to cope. You know, so maybe they're just so overwhelmed that suicide represents a way to to not be so overwhelmed. I mean, there's all sorts of of ways that we can validate. Yeah, when you 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 were saying you giving examples on how to validate, and it went back to one of the things I was going to ask frame suicide as a problem-solving behavior. So that's what you do, right? When you validate, I mean, this is our nature is to avoid pain. That's what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and, and that brings up another subject, which is there's a phrase that people hate, and that's that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Problem. <laughs> yes. And people who are... That. Who, who wrote this the first time? I don't know who wrote this the first time, but I've heard it so many times. I've seen articles where people try to trace its beginnings, and apparently it was said on the Phil Donahue show, like in the 70s. Mm, okay. And people who are suicidal, they tell me they hate the phrase because it implies their problem is temporary, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is, you know, but sometimes people are facing a problem that doesn't have a solution. Maybe their child died, or maybe they have a chronic incurable disease. And so then it's minimizing to say, oh, your problem's temporary. People on suicide prevention hate that phrase because it frames suicide as a solution. It says mm. suicide is a solution, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Yeah. And the reality is, is it is a solution for some people. And we may not want it to be, but it's seen as a solution. Let me put it that way. It's not felt. That I think. It's right. felt as a solution, the only solution, actually, many times. Right. And, I mean, again, not that I think it's the only solution for them or, you know, but I can see how it is seen as a solution. I mean, say somebody, um, they've become bankrupt because of compulsive gambling. They've lost their family home. Their partner has left Mm -hmm. them as a result of this. They're homeless. They're living on the streets. And they have tons of debt. 
if they die, they don't have death anymore and they don't have to deal with the homelessness anymore. So, you know, in their mind, that is a solution and, and realistically, even objectively, it does solve those problems. However, there are other solutions to problems too. And that's where framing suicide as a problem-solving behavior can be useful because you can ask somebody, and again, from a stance of curiosity, not judgment, what problems would be solved if you died? And that can really crystallize what, the, what is driving their suicidal thoughts. Hmm. And, you know, listen non-judgmentally, explore with them what those problems are. And then we can ask, um, if there were other ways to solve those problems, would you still want to die? And usually the answer is, well, of course not. That's why I want to die, because I have those problems. So why are you even asking that? And then, you know, we can say, well, but I believe there are other ways to solve those problems. And can we work on that together? You know, looking at what other solutions are. And I've even seen, um, there's a psychologist, Dave Jobes, who created CAMS, the Collaborative Assessment and Management of Suicidality. Mm -hmm. And I've seen him say, you can always kill yourself later, but for now, don't you think you owe it to yourself to, to try to find solutions before you make this irrevocable final yeah. decision? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to end with one that really caught my attention. Invite the person to look for the catch. What is the catch? Yeah, that's from a book by um, Tom Ellis. And I think the second author of the name is, the last name is Newman. I'm not sure though. Um, and they talk about what is, what is the catch? You know, what's the good thing about if you kill yourself? And then what's the bad thing, you know? So the good thing is I won't have to deal with my problems. The bad thing is I'll miss out, you know? The good thing is I feel like I'm a burden to my family and I won't burden them anymore if I'm not around. But the catch is that now they'll, they'll also be devastated by the suicide, you know? So the catch is what is the drawback to what seems like the solution for mm -hmm. you? And what's valuable about that is we're asking the person to identify the catch rather than telling them what the catch is. Mm -hmm. You know, so a lot of my students, they want to jump in and say, for example, if somebody has children, well, but what about how much this will hurt your children if you kill yourself? And that question can invoke guilt. Oh my God, I'm a terrible parent for thinking of abandoning my children. It can invoke resolve. Oh no, they'll be much better off without me. You know, better that I die and they move on than that they have to deal with me the rest of their life. It could invoke or inspire really dreadful um, problem solving, which is, oh, you're right. It will devastate them so much. I should take them with me. You yeah. know, and, I mean, anything is possible. But if we if, if we ask questions that invite them to volunteer the, the catch, they themselves might say, oh, just think of my children and what will it be like for them if I kill myself? And then they've said it and we're not of imposing course, yeah. our agenda on them. And then we can ask, well, tell me more about that. 
Mm-hmm. You know, tell me more. Yeah, and also imposing your own shame. Because this is a very, I'm glad you brought this up because we have this misconception about people who are thinking of suicide that they don't care. They're selfish, right? How many times have you heard that? They're selfish. They're just thinking of themselves. They don't think about their family. Many, many times it's the opposite. They believe they're a burden. And I know that from a personal experience. My father wrote that to me. Mm. his goodbye letter he started with that saying i'm very sure you'll all be better off without me oh that's heartbreaking yeah yeah he actually yeah he actually wrote the letter two days before he killed himself and he posted it so i got the letter two days after he was dead oh i know was i think i it was the hardest moment for me because i think i was still in a state of shock and that materialized the death too much. But it's just to show that that's what it, they do believe that. And if you say, that's what, I repeat this so many times, don't tell them that. You're going to hurt your family. Because it's, first of all, it's, it's just going to add the shame to what they're feeling. They're just going to feel worse. But as you said, if you invite them to find what you call the catch, then that can be helpful. They can realize that you know, and, and switch this view of I'm a burden to something else, right? And it's, it's best for it to come from them mm-hmm. and not from us. Yeah, yeah. Stacy, thank you so much. And for you who enjoyed the interview, get the book because there are, I don't know, 78 more tips. <laughs> <laughs> I don't we think only, we went through We only covered them. seven, maybe <laughs> at the most. i will have a link in my notes to the book if you're interested it's really really helpful i'm sure it's going to be a lot of help for many of my listeners thank you stacy for your time and for your knowledge and keep your great work going well thank you paula thank you very much thank you for having me and thank you for all your kind words and also thank you for the excellent questions You've been listening to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com. <laughs>